We are going to read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Amen. As we begin this morning, I'd invite you to take out the uh, sermon outline that's found in your bulletin. As you can see from the the title of the sermon, today's uh, sermon is actually PG, and so invite those of you who are parents here today uh, to uh, talk to your children about this important topic, to bless your kids with a a Christian understanding of the importance of marriage and sex. Uh, If you have uh, issues in terms of trying to help your children understand these issues, uh, Pastor Brian would be available to you to talk to you about how you can talk to your kids about this important subject, or you can talk to me as well. Today is the Sunday when we will be concluding our sermon series on marriage. Uh, next week, we're going to return to our series on uh, discipleship and what a disciple of Jesus looks like from a, the book of Ephesians. We're going to finish that series on Ephesians on Labor Day weekend. Uh, But today, we finish our sermon series about marriage. And since you cannot talk about marriage without talking about sex, today we will discuss what the Bible has to say about sex. Now, some people from our community might say that, uh, what does the Bible actually have to say about sex when you talk about it? Uh, They would say that don't those people who read the Bible have a puritanical view of sex? Well, obviously, many people today do not like the Puritans, but I would say right up front that as this pastor really loves the Puritans, I love Puritans like Jonathan Edwards and John Owen and Richard Sibbs. I love the Puritans because they love Jesus and because they love the Bible. That's a really good combination in my mind. So here's a a spoiler alert on what the Puritans as well as what the Bible teaches about sex. Sex is a a good gift of God that is reserved for marriage. Now, when some people hear the Bible's teaching on sex, they conclude that the Bible does not know what it is talking about on this subject. But before we jump to any conclusions, let me talk to you about an article that was posted on Christianity Today last month. This article talked about a sociological study that examined the connection between religious faith and sexual satisfaction. Here was its conclusion. Religious people are, the most sati- are among the most sexually satisfied people. Adherence to the sexual norms promoted by conservative Protestants, that is, delaying sex until marriage, practicing monogamy within marriage, and avoiding pornography, is consistently associated with marital happiness. It sounds to me like this article is saying that it is the Bible readers. It's the Puritans who are the ones who have the greatest marital happiness. They are the ones who have the happiest sex lives. So is that weird or what? Actually, it's not weird. God knows what he is talking about in his word, the Bible. So let's examine what the Bible has to say regarding sex and marriage from Ephesians chapter 5. Let's see some of the implications of that teaching for us today. 
First of all, we find out as we discover what the Bible says about sex that sex is not about certain things. In Ephesians 5 and verse 31, the Apostle Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. And he writes there, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So when Paul says that the husband and the wife become one flesh, he is speaking at one level about sex. He is speaking about sexual union as well as about other kinds of union between the husband and wife. Marriage makes a husband and wife one body. And by quoting from the book of Genesis, which speaks of God's uniting in marriage the first human couple, Adam and Eve, Paul is saying that sex is reserved for marriage. In the very first marriage, God made it clear that marriage comes first and then sex follows afterwards. So what are some of the implications of this teaching? One implication is that sex is not just an appetite. Some people today would say that sex is merely another human appetite. When you are hungry for food, you eat. So when you feel like having sex, what should you do? If sex is just an appetite, you should just have sex whenever you want it with whomever you want it. That would be the thinking of those who believe that sex is just an appetite. But please turn in your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Turn back a couple of books to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 13. Listen as I read what the Apostle Paul writes there. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 13, Paul writes, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So Paul quotes what the Corinthians were saying in the first part of this verse. The Corinthians were saying that it is food that is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. It's talking about bodily appetites here. The Corinthians thought that all bodily appetites were pretty much the same. And so in the Corinthians' view, having a hamburger and having sex with a prostitute were pretty much the same thing, just an expression of different appetites. But Paul said that the Corinthians were dead wrong in this matter of their appetites. Having sex outside of marriage, Paul says, is sexual immorality. Your body, Paul says, belongs to the Lord. God is your maker and your redeemer. If you are a Christian, then God owns you twice over. And since God is our maker and our redeemer, you should follow his rules with regard to sex and marriage. God's rules are that sex is reserved for marriage. He made this clear from the very first marriage. So Paul concludes his discussion of sex with the Corinthians by saying to the church in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. A second implication of the Bible's teaching on sex is that sex is not dirty. 
after God had brought the man and the woman together in marriage, look at what God says about sex and marriage in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. Let's read together from God's word out loud. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So what was God's verdict about sex and marriage? It was very good. Since God himself is completely good, since he is holy, can God then create something bad? No. Within marriage, sex is a very good gift of God. And if you want confirmation of that fact, you really should read the Song of Solomon in the book of the Bible sometime. When you read Song of Solomon, you realize that the Bible is not a book for prudes. The Bible instead celebrates sex within marriage. Now, is it true that some churches' marriage with regard to sex is only no, 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 no way, Jose? Is that what some churches teach? Yes, it is. But those churches have not read the Bible. God is the creator and giver of sex. So sex is not dirty. It is, in fact, good, clean fun. It is holy within the confines of marriage. A third implication of the Bible's teaching regarding sex and marriage is that sex is not just about a couple's happiness and fulfillment. What does Paul say that sex and marriage are all about? If you look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 32, you read, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The covenant of marriage and sex between a husband and wife are simply a picture. They are a picture of Christ's covenant love for and unity with his church. God then gave us the gift of sex within marriage to know Jesus and his love for us better. What a wonderful gift that God has given to us. Sex and marriage, then, are not really about a husband and a wife. They are really about the union of Jesus with his church. So when a husband and a wife make love to one another, they are saying to each other, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. Sex is a picture of the covenant that they have made with one another. It is also a picture of the covenant that Jesus has made with his bride, the church. Jesus says to us, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you within the church. Can you see now why the Bible teaches that sex is a good gift of God with, that is reserved for marriage? Now, at this point, I'm sure that some of you want to call a timeout on this particular sermon. You might want to say to me, uh, Pastor, I'm not sure if you are aware of this, but there are a lot of people who have had sex outside of marriage. I'm talking a lot. So what does the Bible have to say to all of those people who have had sex outside of marriage? Well, this is the part of the message where I remind you 
that the pastor of this church is not quite as dumb as he looks. (laughs) Not quite. Yes, in fact, it has been brought to my attention that there are people who are having sex outside of marriage. I've been the pastor here at this particular church for 18 years, and in those 18 years, some couples have come to me from outside of the church, from this community, who have asked me to marry them. Usually it's grandma who wants to see them married in a church, and so they'd say, go ask a pastor to marry you. And so when these couples come to me from outside of our church asking me to marry them, I want to ask you a question about those couples. The question I have for you is, how many of those couples from this community do you think were not already living together when they asked me to marry them? How many of them were not already married? The answer to that question is zero. Zero in 18 years. So clearly in our community, people do not believe that marriage is a prerequisite for sex. They just don't believe that. But for some of you today, I have created something of a crisis for you. You have learned today or been reminded today that the Bible teaches that sex is a good gift of God that is reserved for marriage. But you yourself actually have had sex outside of marriage. And so what do you do now? Well, this is my favorite part of every sermon. This is the part of the sermon where I get to preach the gospel, where I get to preach the good news. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. Jesus didn't die for good people. He died for sinners, for those who transgressed his law. That's who Jesus died for. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for you. He didn't die for supposedly good people. The reality is that every person here today is a sinner. Some of you have sinned by having sex outside of marriage. That's true. But when you read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5, you realize that just about every single one of us has sinned sexually in one form or another. And so we need to realize that all of us need a Savior. All of us need the gospel. All of us need Jesus. If we have faith that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, Jesus will forgive us of all of our sins. And so let's read out loud together from 1 John 1.9 to see what we should do when we realize that we have sinned. Let's read together. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you have sinned, either by having sex outside of marriage or in some other way, what is the solution that God offers to you today? Your solution is to confess that sin to God, to agree with God that what you have done is wrong. And then you need to turn away from your sin, to repent of it. And what will God do? He will forgive your sin and he will cleanse you from how much of your unrighteousness? How much of it will he cleanse? All of it. All of it will be made clean if you confess your sin to God. You will be completely clean. 
Your shame and your guilt will be washed away. It will be erased by God if you come to Him and confess. Really, you say? Yes, really. The gospel is that good. There is a wonderful song that I've been singing to myself in recent months. It's a song that I I sing to myself whenever the Holy Spirit convicts me of a a sin that I have committed. And the chorus to the song simply says this, Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Isn't that great? Our sins are many. We commit sins all of the time. But God's mercy is always greater than our sin. Always. So don't you dare tell God that He cannot forgive you. God is greater than your sin. He can forgive it. God is always greater than any sin we commit. His mercy is more. Trust Him then to forgive you. Confess your sin and experience His complete cleansing for your life. Well, sex is not about certain things. Sex is also definitely about certain things. First of all, the Bible teaches that sex is about unity. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and listen as I read from 1 Corinthians 6 and verses 15 and 16. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So while it is true that becoming one flesh certainly means sexual union, it's clear to Paul that it means much more than just sexual union. Otherwise, Paul would be arguing, don't you know that when you are having sex with a prostitute, you are having sex with a prostitute? Well, yeah, that's obvious. So becoming one flesh with a person, whether it be with a prostitute or with anyone else, means much more than just mere physical union. It means complete unity in every way. It means the union of a man and a woman at all levels of their lives. To be one flesh is to be united not just physically, but also emotionally, personally, socially, economically, legally, in every single way that you could be united. That's what it means to become one flesh. You are one in every way possible when you become one flesh with another human being. For this reason, I would say to you that sex outside of marriage is a lie. When you join your body to another, your body is saying that you are now committed to this other person in every way possible. But if you are not married when you join your body together with another, you are withholding your commitment to be truly united with the other. You are lying about your unity. It is a lie to give your body to someone 
to whom you will not also commit your whole life. Well, sex is not only about unity, sex is also about making a covenant. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul compares the covenant that a husband makes with his wife to the covenant that Jesus makes with his church. People are supposed to be able to look at your marriages and see what Jesus' commitment to his bride looks like. That's what they should see when they look at your marriage. They should see, oh, Jesus is faithful to his spouse, just like I see a picture of in your marriage. That's what they should see. Every time, then, that husbands and wives come together in sex, they are renewing the covenant that they made before God in their marriage vows. They are saying to one another, I am still giving myself completely, unreservedly, and exclusively to you. Since sex means the renewal of the covenant, how often then should married couples be having sex? Look down at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 3. There in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 3, we read that the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. And then in verse 5, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Now, I realize that as married couples, we do get busy. I realize as well that we get tired. And I realize also that many of us are getting older, though not some of you. But I would also say to all of you who are married, sex is far too important to neglect. It is sex that renews your covenant with one another. And so married couples, then on a regular basis, you need to turn off your annoying cell phone. Okay? And then you need to get a, a sign for your bedroom door, which I brought a picture of this morning. You need to get that sign. You need to hang it up outside your bedroom door. And then as married couples, you need to come together once again. And if someone asks you why they couldn't get a hold of you at a certain time of day, here's what you tell them. You were obeying the Bible. <laughs> you are renewing your covenant vows to one another. It's a good thing to do for married couples. But you might say to yourself, well, what should Christians who are unmarried do when they are tempted to have sex? Isn't it ridiculous to expect abstinence on their part when it comes to sex? Isn't that unbelievable to expect in this day and age? No, it's not. The true church of Jesus Christ has always upheld the teaching that sex is reserved for marriage. It's a good gift of God, but it is for marriage. And if you want to obey the Bible's teaching, you're going to need to develop some convictions in your life. You need to develop some convictions about the place of sex. The importance of convictions is seen in Jane Austen's novel, Jane Eyre. In the novel, Jane Eyre falls in love with a man named Mr. Rochester. But Mr. Rochester is already married, and his mentally ill wife lives in an upstairs room in his estate. 
However, Mr. Rochester attempts to coerce Jane to become his mistress, to join him in his house, to live with him there while his mentally ill wife lives upstairs. So this offer to Jane Eyre sets off this incredible conflict within her. Her feelings said to her at that time, think of his misery, think of his danger, look at his state when he is alone, remember his headlong nature, soothe him, save him, love him, tell him you love him and will be his. Who in the world cares for you? Or who will be injured by what you do? Jane Eyre's feelings clearly told her that it would be the right thing to do for her to become the mistress of Mr. Rochester. But she didn't do that. Why not? Because she had convictions about what was the right thing to do with regard to sex and marriage. She simply said to herself, I will respect myself. I will keep the law given by God. Jane Eyre takes her stand not on her feelings, but she takes her stand firmly on the Word of God. Now, is it hard to hold on to our convictions regarding sex and marriage in a culture that is obsessed with sex? Absolutely, it's hard. The next book that we will be reading for the book club in our church is the true story of a woman named Jamie Ivey. It is called, If Only You Knew. Jamie grew up going to church with her family and hearing the Bible taught on a weekly basis. From all appearances, she looked like a good teenage girl. But by the time she was 16 years old, Jamie Ivey found herself sleeping with a series of boyfriends for the next six years. Why would she do that when she knew what the Bible taught about sex and marriage? Because she listened to her heart instead of listening to the Bible. And Jamie's heart was telling her this, you need to be loved. You need to be accepted. You need to be known. And the way to have all of these needs met is to sleep with the boy who is standing in front of you. Jamie discovered to her great disappointment that she was wrong about sex being the means of having her needs met. She was wrong every single time. So what changed Jamie? What gave her the power to stop sleeping with these boys? Since this is a Christian book, it should not be a surprise to you that the answer is Jesus. Jesus changed her life. And one of the things that Jesus did to change her life was to speak to her about her identity in Christ. She writes that over time, God began to reveal himself to me in ways that I had never been willing to accept. He allowed me to believe things about myself that I had not been believing before. I finally start to learn that my identity is not skewed because of all the things that I have done or haven't done, but is secured by all of the things that Jesus 
has done for me, as well as those things that Jesus hasn't done, like condemn me or reject me. My identity is only what it is today, she writes, a daughter of the King because of Jesus. It has nothing to do with me. I love this book because it reminds me of the greatness of the gospel. We change not in order to earn God's favor and his approval. Rather, we change in response to God's grace and mercy that he has poured out on us richly. So I hope that many of you will sign up in the foyer after church today to read this book together with me. If you do read the book, I think you will find it impossible not to cry when you read through chapter 6. If you can make it through chapter 6 without crying, you are a much stronger person than I am. Church, there is a lot of confusion in the world today about what sex is about. So let's remember that sex is about unity. It's a picture of the church's unity with Jesus. And it is also a picture of our complete unity in every area of our lives as husbands and wives. And second, let's remember that sex is about renewing the marriage covenant. Sex is a promise. It's a promise that we will always be faithful to our vows in every aspect of our lives. It's a promise that you have the power to keep because the Jesus who keeps his promises now lives in you. Let's pray together. God, how grateful we are for the wonderful gifts that you give to your church. We thank you, O Lord, for the wonderful gifts of marriage and sex. Lord, I pray for those who are here today. I pray that you would help each and every one of us to be faithful to the promises that we have made to each other, to the promises that we have made to you. Thank you now that you give us the the power to keep those promises through Christ. And thank you as well that you are a forgiving and a merciful God. For those who need your mercy, may they cry out to you today and find that you are a gracious and merciful God. In your great name we pray, amen.